Hi. Thanks for being Hello. Here. Hey, Katarina. Hi, Vladko. Hope I'm saying your name right. Hi, Cecile. Hi. Hi, Katarina. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Vladko. Hello. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Very well. It's Vladko speaking. Hi. Thanks so much for making it. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. Come. I think um, I'm a bit of a Luddite, like I said, but I did manage. I'm very happy. Yeah, we are happy, very happy that you made it. So thank you for making. Thanks a lot for inviting us. It's a, it's a pleasure. We'll wait. The room is scheduled for um for four, so we'll wait a few minutes for people to come in. So uh, yeah, oh. <laughs> and then I'll introduce you. Thanks. Katarina, I was thinking I could move myself down to the audience until the the actual presenters. So you could mod the presenters so that the lineup will represent your the um, the calendar. Oh, it's you're included in the calendar. You're totally fine. <laughs> it's good. All good. <laughs> Thank sure. you. Hi, Rainer. How are you? <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thank you for being here. Can you hear us okay? I'm trying to ping some people. Yeah, me too. I did the same.
Um, yeah, we can start to, you know, with introductions and um, yeah, and then I'll give you, um, you to the stage. <laughs> so yeah, welcome everyone to, um, to the Science Society Club and um, we are very honored to have um, guest speakers here that uh, will talk about their very interesting and highly discussed um, research. And um, yeah, I'll start introducing you uh, uh, Dr. Rainer Dumke. Um, he is an associate professor um, at um, in Singapore at and he uh, did his um, he did his PhD at the Leibniz Univers University Hannover and he did his postdoc at Max Planck Institute for the Science of Light and um, he now is at the Center for Quantum Technologies at the National University of Singapore and um, yeah, he won the IG Nobel Prize in 2019. And for people that don't know the IG Nobel Prize, it is the jokey younger brother of the highly prestigious uh, Nobel Prize. And it was awarded for the research over magnetized cockroaches. So that's a, that's a very cool prize to win. And uh, yeah, in his group, they are working on further development of technologies with the aim of using quantum and nature of ultra cold atomic matter. And their projects include to work with superconducting atom chips, both Einstein condensates, uh, miniaturized optical systems for quantum information processing and building a compact and transportable atom interferometer for the precise determination of local gravity. Yeah, and uh, then we have um, also a professor, um, Dr. Vladko Verdal. Um, he um, is um, professor of quantum information science at the University of Oxford and governing body fellow of Wolfson College. And he's also principal investigator uh, in Singapore at CQT, a professor of physics and a Centauri professor of quantum information at Leeds University. And um, he did his PhD at the Imperial College of Science, Technology and Medicine. Um, and his bachelor in physics at the Imperial College of Science. And he won also uh, a lot of award, awards throughout his career. So uh, yeah, we are very honored to have you both here to, um, to introduce us to your very interesting and exciting work. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Reinek, can you can you hear us? Uh, Vladko, would you like to start? 
until right now. Maybe he has is having trouble with the app. I'm not sure. Of course. Um, of, uh, can you hear me? I'm I'm happy to start. Okay, Vladko, can I interrupt just one moment? I want to share this for Reiner. Um, Reiner, it's possible if you go off of your Wi-Fi that you would be able to get reception if that's the problem and just want to make sure that you know where your mic is. And also another thing you can try is leave the room and then come back in and that could also help to enable your mic. Okay, Vladko, excuse me, the mic is yours. Not at all. Actually, it's um, uh, thank you for um, inviting me and uh, for your very glamorous introduction. Um, I, I just want to kind of um, maybe comment on um, some of the research that you mentioned that we've been doing. Um, the, I think the exciting question, and please interrupt me if there are any um, any questions or, or clarifications. The exciting thing for us is really to understand whether quantum mechanics applies to anything, um, any object in the universe. We know that quantum mechanics works really well for small objects. You know, if you're talking about atoms and, and subatomic particles and light and, you know, particles of light, photons and all of that, we've tested these things quite extensively. Uh, however, we... Um, we haven't tested quantum mechanics in the macroscopic domain. The question is, if you go larger and larger, if you go into more complex molecules, uh, the question is whether quantum mechanics is still valid at that level. Are there quantum processes that are really relevant uh, for complicated chemical processes that are relevant for biological functions? And I think this is a completely unexplored uh, direction. And it's very exciting, I think, because ultimately um, what we are really trying to understand is whether quantum physics is relevant for living systems. Um, so so that's, that really sounds like a, like a really fantastic um, question because it involves not just physics, uh, it involves chemistry and understanding various issues in biology. So it's kind of a multidisciplinary direction. It crosses boundaries between many fields. Also, computing, I think, is something that you're going to hear about because ultimately, Reiner's experiment uh, was really about a hybrid technology where he was coupling a living system uh, to a quantum uh, bit uh, inside his laboratory, a specific quantum bit that we can also talk more about, and I'm happy to to explain it. So I think the the exciting thing for us really uh, was to go into this macroscopic direction. That's the main thing. Does quantum mechanics really apply at that level of complexity? I'm um, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you, but it's a little faint. Yeah, in any case, please go ahead, Vladko, uh, and yeah, I can jump in any time. Uh, I, I think I, I think I, I just wanted to set the scene, Reiner. Uh, you you can maybe go um, and explain the uh, the experiment a little bit because I think the big vision really for us, um, like I said, is to take quantum mechanics from this microscopic domain of of small objects of a handful of atoms and, and small molecules and photons and so on, 
and really test it on something big. And I think this was exciting for us because there are various claims even in, in physics that quantum mechanics will actually um, cease to be applicable. It will collapse, if you like, uh, when it encounters a big enough complex object. And certainly living systems are, as far as quantum physics is concerned, big and, and complicated. So there are even some, um, some suggestions, some hypotheses in physics that the quantum mechanics will actually not be applicable uh, to living systems. Um, and I think this was is really one of our key driving motivations. Um, and, and maybe, Rainer, you can actually say now a bit more about the experiment. I think if this vision is clear, then I think maybe the next step logically is the experiment. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, um, as, as you have mentioned, this, this was our driving idea. Um, so, however, let's say having this idea, and the question is actually now, how can we actually um, yeah, complete it, right? Or, 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 or do, do this task? Um, and actually to, let's say, um, let's say couple a, um, a quantum mechanical system with, let's say, a living system, um, that's, that has certain certain difficulties, right? Um, because um, let's say um, one one has to be able to um, adopt let's say a quantum mechanical system to let's say as the, an environment which a biological systems like, right? So it's typically then at room temperature, it's kind of Kelvin, and um, the environment is actually noisy and uh, wet. Um, so uh, let's say one way is let's say to try to um, um, change let's say quantum system that can actually work in this type of an environment. Um, so at this uh, let's say one has to use and the higher energies, typically optical frequencies, um, and also very very short time scales. Or the other option is actually to find an organism which actually survives in the surrounding which a quantum system likes, meaning at low energy um, and um, also, let's say, in a surrounding which is non-interacting, so which actually means uh, the, the system has to be uh, inside a vacuum. And there are actually not so many organisms which would be able to survive uh, being exposed to such an environment. Um, in fact, this, this organism has to undergo something like a uh, cryptobiosis, um, in a sort of which is a latent state of life, um, which, let's say, some um, life forms can actually enter when they are, uh, let's say, in response to an adverse environmental conditions, for example, like a freezing or being in a vacuum. And let's say, in this, um, 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 let's say, state, um, all measurable metabolic processes um, come to actually to a standstill. Um, and then when actually the environment returns to normal, the organism actually goes then again uh, back to normal. And the best life form for our experiments uh, to actually, which can actually do this, um, also in terms of size and uh, yeah, ability to sustain these conditions are actually tardigrades or tardigrades. Um, in particular, actually, a species or specimen of a Danish population uh, 
um, which we have actually um, used. And actually, this uh, particular uh, species is also very uh, robust. Um, or, yeah, very robust and can actually sustain harsh environments. Um, when this uh, tardigrade actually goes undergoes the descriptive biosis, it will reduce um, its volume to its, its shrinking uh, um, and curling up, um, and uh, um, goes into this R metabolic state, which is actually known as the tan state. Um, this tardigrade was actually um, collected by uh, one of our collaborators, Nadia. Um, she was actually instrumental in, let's say, taming uh, the tardigrade, and actually she knew how to handle this. Um, this was collected from a roof gutter in, in Denmark and then prepared in the tan state uh, so that, let's say, the tardigrade could survive the journey from Denmark to Singapore, where we have done, let's say, all these um, experiments. When the um, tardigrade then arrived in Singapore, we placed uh, um, the tardigrade on the superconducting qubit. Um, and um, the superconducting qubit, um, one could actually imagine it's uh, some microfabricated uh, system um, on a uh, silicon wafer. Um, for the qubit which we have uh, used, we used a transform qubit. Um, this transform qubit. Um, is actually uh, yeah, made out of, let's say, uh, principal big capacitor uh, and a Josen junction. Um, the capacitor is, let's say, almost mesoscopic, so you can see it uh, with, with your bare eyes. And it's actually ideal to um, use, let's say, this, this capacitor to couple to the um, tardigrade itself, which you actually uh, put directly in between this uh, capacitor electrodes. Um, then, let's say the qubit is placed inside a 3D aluminum cavity, which is uh, superconducting at uh, the temperature diffusion filtrator, which we also use actually to read out the qubit state. Um, then the, the whole um, 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 sample is placed into a dilution refrigerator and cooled down to about um, 10 millikelvin, um, where we also um, then start the measurements. At the same time, of course, the system is also evacuated to pressures below 10 to minus 6 millibars. And what we have seen is actually that um, the, let's say, resonance frequency of the qubit is shifted in presence of the tardigrade. So the question is, how can we understand this? So there's, um, let's say, a microscopic picture um, as following. Um, the tardigrade, as I said before, is placed between this uh, capacitor electrons of the transmon qubit. And then if the uh, transmon is, let's say, in the, in the state zero, so in, in the ground state, nothing is happening. However, if you promote the, let's say, transmon qubit to an excited state, uh, let's say with the microwave part, um, then the electric field um, um, inside the transmon qubit is actually oscillating uh, between the, um, also between the capacitor electrodes. And this oscillating field is also interacting with the molecules inside the tardigrade and polarizes them, which leads to an effective change of the electric field. And with this also a change in the resonance frequency of the combined uh, tardigrade qubit system. 
it's maybe also worthwhile to note that um, if we if you look actually at let's say the coherence time of let's say the only the qubit alone and the qubit tardigrade system, they are roughly the same. Meaning actually that um, the let's say qubit tardigrade system um, is well isolated and doesn't cover to an environment. So it's a well isolated uh, uh, quantum system. Um, so if you, let's say, describe the wave function, it spreads across, uh, let's say, the whole system uh, across the Sorgenheim uh, qubit and the tardigrade itself. After this um, experiment, we have done, let's say, a second experiment where we've coupled the um, um, qubit tardigrade system um, to another qubit, which was also located in the cavity. Um, and now we have actually this, this, this two systems, the qubit tardigrade system and qubit. And we could actually also, uh, or we could actually entangle um, this two system also with each other. So we made actually a base state with a fidelity of uh, 82%. Um, the amazing part, in fact, of the experiment, which let's say, uh, um, especially we as physicists, we have found uh, pretty um, um, breathtaking was that after finishing the experiment, uh, which took about 420 hours, um, we gently increased again the pressure and the temperature um, of the um, dilution refrigerator uh, to ambient condition, took out the tardigrade from the qubit system and reintroduced it to the, let's say, normal living conditions. So we put it inside a container with some food. And then after a short while, we have actually seen that the tardigrade left the tan state. So it, uh, so before it was curled up, so it uh, went to the normal state and actually enjoyed the food which we have provided. So we could really see how it was clamping with its lips feet on the food and munching it away. So um, was was um, um, living. However, of course, um, it's maybe also worthwhile to note that. We have done this experiment uh, quite a few times, and uh, especially in, in the beginning, uh, not many tardigrades actually survived. So there were only a few uh, uh, which have survived. And one, um, um, yeah, the, the, the let's say main reason uh, which, which we, we found is that actually the um, uh, heating up and introducing um, again uh, pressure. Um, how this is actually done has to be very um, gently and very, very slowly so that the tardigrade um, can actually um, survive um, this waking up procedure in, uh, again. Um, so um, question, of course, is now to say, okay, uh, were the tardigrades alive during the experiment? Um, what we can say um, is they were alive before and they were alive after the experiments. During the experiments, um, they were in this latent uh, life form, so which is this um, unmetabolic state. And we could actually, well, one could actually um, say that, let's say, during the experiment, um, there was actually no metabolic activities present in the in the tardigrade itself because it was at this very low temperatures, where one could say that the molecules are um, in their ground state, or there are also no chemical reactions happening at this low temperatures because the energy is not enough. Um, so um, one could, um, from a physics point of view, 
one could actually model the target rate as um, um, let's say just a sphere with, uh, uh, with a, as a polarizable sphere. Um, right. So what's the target rate entangled with the qubit? Um, I would say actually um, yes, uh, but we actually could not measure the um, entanglement uh, itself on the target rate, only on the coupled systems. But maybe actually also Vladko can jump in here a little bit and um, um, discuss a little bit about the entanglement of the, let's say, qubit with the target grade and how to actually interpret this. Hi, um, Rainer, I'm very happy to jump in unless there are some uh, questions and comments um, from, uh, from your discussion so far, but I'm happy to, to talk a bit about entanglement as well. Yes, please go ahead. Uh, thank you. All right, excellent. Okay, so um, let me maybe take um, uh, take a step back again, um, and um, and say what is really um, exciting to us um, in 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 this particular experiment. Um, if we go back, I think everyone would have would have heard about this famous thought experiment, and and you know we are hoping that what Reiner did makes. Uh, makes Schrodinger's thought experiment a little bit less of a thought experiment and a little bit more of, of, of reality. Schrodinger had this vision um, back in 1935. He had the vision that, um, that it's not acceptable to say that uh, quantum mechanics is weird, but um, that's okay because it only applies to small things that are kind of irrelevant in the everyday world. And he came up with this famous uh, cat experiment, right? The Schrodinger cat experiment. And the point he was demonstrating there is that the key feature of quantum mechanics is that quantum things can be in many different uh, states at the same time. So, you know, the superconducting qubit that Reiner was describing, you could literally have electrons which exist in two different positions at the same time. You can have a certain number of electrons in one location in this uh, qubit, and you can have it at the same time uh, in another location. This is this famous superposition in quantum mechanics. And that's why we call it a quantum bit, not just a classical bit. Now, Schrodinger was, was thinking, what happens if this kind of quantum object interacts with something else? In his, in his case, he chose this famous cat. Uh, I have no idea why, uh, why a cat. I, I actually prefer cats to dogs. I would have probably done this with a dog uh, or with something else. But, uh, but anyway, he chose a cat. And um, certainly, you know, it's, it's one of the more advanced forms of life. And I guess that's what he uh, wanted to illustrate. And then he, then he said, well, look, if this atom, in my case, has either decayed or not decayed, but actually this is simultaneously present at the same time there, then when the cat looks at it, in one branch of this state, if you like, uh, it's going to be okay because the atom has not decayed. But in the other branch, the atom decays, and this decay breaks a bottle with poison that actually poisons the cat. So he said, if I take quantum mechanics seriously, and if I think it applies to cats as much as it applies to atoms, then I've got to conclude uh, 
that there are simultaneously two states of the cat. One is being alive and the other one is being dead. So he said this tiny superposition of an atom emitting a photon or not emitting a photon, when the cat couples to it, suddenly leads to a seemingly paradoxical state where the cat is dead and alive at the same time. How can that be? And, you know, Schrodinger initially thought that this was somewhat of a paradox, potentially. But I think um, as he continued with his research and towards the end of his life, he, in fact, changed his mind and he thought that's how things are. You know, th this is the one of the implications of, of taking quantum physics seriously. And in fact, what, what Reiner has done, and this is probably just only a first experiment in, in that direction, is to really try to see what happens if you take a, admittedly, a far simpler living system than a, than a cat, and you try to couple it to a quantum bit that's really in a superposition uh, of two different, uh, almost what you would call um, very distinguishable, in fact, states of electrons. Uh, which, which state is, is, is the tardigrade going to couple to? And as Reiner said, if you take quantum mechanics seriously, and if you think that it applies uh, to whatever the molecules that are relevant inside the tardigrade uh, would be in this case, then the inescapable conclusion really um, is that the tardigrade becomes quantum entangled to this superconducting qubit. Um, of course, it's not as dramatic as the tardigrade being dead and alive because we don't really understand um, yet what kind of degrees of freedom this would be. Uh, but it really is fascinating and, and amazing that it is a kind of macroscopic living system um, being able to somehow respond to a quantum superposition and join uh, join this entangled state. And I think what Reiner mentioned is that the two crucial bits of evidence that this really is so, I mean, you can, of course, question this and, and we can do more detailed analysis, both theoretically and experiments can probe this more. And I think that's exactly what uh, Reiner and I have been discussing, in fact, how to, how to do um, more kind of uh, detailed experiments and more sophisticated experiments. But I think two crucial bits of evidence is that if you were to measure um, this new hybrid system, the entangled system between the qubit and the tardigrade, in fact, it behaves very much like the qubit itself. It hasn't lost any uh, of its quantumness, if you like, quantum ability due to being entangled. And so that's a very important thing to, to say. It's not that the tardigrade acts as a, as a noisy system, as a destructive system. It, in fact, joins the qubit in much the same way to create yet another qubit, if you like. And on top of it, then, um, Reiner was describing the next experiment, which is to bring yet another qubit, a fresh uh, superconducting qubit, and in fact, show that even this qubit can form yet another entangled. So this would be like a triple entangled state where you've got two superconducting qubits somehow both coupled, both entangled quantum mechanically to this tardigrade. So these are the kind of two bits of evidence that very strongly, I would say, uh, suggest to us 
that 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 there is really a quantum entangled state there. Now, what what Reiner did allude to, and I think this this is by all means um, very much worth doing, and I think it should be one of our next steps, is to really try to probe this organism independently of the qubit and try to really zoom into it and go inside and try to identify possibly which particular molecules inside the tardigrade it's 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 you know it's unlikely that the whole tardigrade responds to this there's always going to be some part of the tardigrade um, some kind of charge distributed inside the tardigrade that's going to get entangled to this uh, superconducting qubit and of course a big question for us and we have no idea uh, and in fact even our colleagues in biology don't don't really understand this well is which particular um, part of the tardigrade really is electrically responding uh, to this superposed uh, quantum bit I think this would be a great question and and you know looking beyond that um, what, what really is exciting is can we do even better than that could we entangle even more living systems could we make them more complicated could we make them more responsive while they're being um, uh, kind of quantum mechanically uh, manipulated and probed and, and there are huge like I said you should really think of this experiment as maybe the first of its kind but we can really see many follow-ups that would be uh, even more exciting and that would really allow us to probe this question of universal quantumness if you like um, much more deeply than, than what we are doing now. I don't know, Rainer, if you want to add anything to, uh, to this as well. No, no, I think um, um, that, that captures actually the, the main point um, very, very nicely. Um, and um, Yes, um, I also agree that let's say uh, we hope that let's say with this experience that we have done, and also the theory which we have developed uh, or which we have um, developed uh, around the experiment, um, that this is just the trigger point for actually more um, exciting experiments to actually come to actually really let's say um, think now uh, what can we do better, what can we do with the next steps. Um, finding actually, as you said, molecules within the tardigrade, which you can really try to, um, let's say, latch on and um, um, uh, measure directly when it's actually entangling with the organizing qubits, or are there actually even even other possibilities? Um, interesting would be also to see um, maybe there, are, let's say, also other, let's say, living systems uh, which we can actually use. Um, so yeah, these are actually the the next next uh, challenges which which are on the horizon um if i may say uh, uh i had uh, we had uh here maybe a month or two months ago cecile uh we had doc, uh, professor woodward from tokyo university here and he um he uh, talked about his research where he saw that mag a magnetic field changed um uh, fluorescent signal in uh, human cells, like intrinsic fluorescent signal. And he showed that um, spin-correlated radical pairs um, are, um, I just read, uh, uh, are remarkable entities that um, are intermediates in a range of chemical and biological reactions 
due to their very special quantum mechanical properties uh, that uh, show um, reactivity that can be influenced by even very weak magnetic fields. So I don't know if it would be cool to collaborate with him or troubleshoot with him because he might have a have an idea in the biological system what could you know um, to like a, a pin like narrow it down at what uh, molecules to look at. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I know, I know his work. So it's uh, very, very nice. And um, the experiment he has done has actually shown that um, I think it was with flavorine or so, some some large molecule, um, where actually the let's say reaction. Um, inside the molecule depends on the applied magnetic field strength. Um, we have actually done, let's say, similar experiments, um, or let's say, in the, or let's say, going in a similar direction, also looking at magnetoreceptions of animals um, with actually um, this, this American cockroaches, um, which, yeah, we, we have done a couple of years ago. Um, and there, what we have, let's say, looked at was um, if, let's say, the, in this case, this biological system, this American um, cockroach, is actually um, susceptible to ambient magnetic fields. So magnetic fields are about uh, half a cost, which is extremely, um, let's say, low magnetic fields to be, let's say, detected for a system at 300 Kelvin. Um, of course, you can, let's say, think with, with a compass, I can actually see it. But, um, let's say, uh, making a compass is, also, there actually the, the, the needle has to be microscopic, um, and uh, it has to be also, um, let's say, housed, let's say, in a non-disturbing environment. Um, so, anyways, we have done, let's say, this experiments with the American cockroach. We have done some behavior experiments. We have seen that this cockroach has actually um, changed their behavior uh, by, let's say, applying this, um, let's say, magnetic field of about half a gauss. Um, you could also measure with using atomic magnetometer the magnetization um, of the American cockroach, um, and actually have seen then that let's say the magnetic response, uh, which actually would probe let's say a classical uh, mechanism for measuring um, uh, yeah, so a classical mechanism which the cockroach would actually use to measure the magnetic field. Um, well, we have actually shown that this classical mechanism would actually not uh, or could not explain the behavioral response uh, of, of the cockroaches. And then uh, we have done some simulations and um, um, put in, let's say, this uh, quantum mechanical system, this radical pair mechanism. And uh, there uh, we have seen that this might be able to explain. But we couldn't do this, let's say, experiment directly with the, with the molecule um, at this point in time. But yeah, um, there are, let's say, um, uh, certain processes in animals um, like, for instance, uh, measuring uh, magnetic fields, um, which are believed that they are uh, using, um, let's say, quantum mechanical processes. But, but also, again, here, one, one really has to, let's say, zoom in and see um, um, this, or let's say, really uh, investigate this process in, in uh, much more detail. I just want to ask a question. So, are you assuming that the all the uh, the molecules or atoms in the tardigrade um, are coherent and uh, um, in a coherent state in the 
or kind of some kind of approximate uh, coherent state in in the uh, the state that you're measuring that um, uh, supposedly uh, be in uh, in a in an entanglement. Do you want to answer or should I? Please go ahead. Okay, sure. Um, so, um, if I understand the question correctly, the the, the question was: um, if we assume that um, that all, all the the that the molecules atoms in the in the tardigrade are um, um, in some kind of coherent state and that they entangled with the Zorganak um, um, uh, qubit. Um, so let's say the, the, the let's say we have let's say brought the tardigrade to this let's say extremely low temperature, so about um, ten millikelvin. Um, and at this temperatures, one could actually say that um, the molecules are in their ground state. So um, they are um, let's say in in a let's say very well defined um, uh, quantum mechanical state. Um, this tardigrade grade is actually placed inside the let's say inside or between this capacitor plates of this uh, transform qubit, um, and let's say this 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 transform qubit is let's say uh, printed on a two let's say on on a two D surface on a um, uh, silicon wafer. If you look actually the electric field um, um, of this, let's say, uh, capacitor plate, um, they were they they actually fringe fields which are leaving the surface of the silicon wafer, right? But let's say a few, um, let's say tens of micrometers higher, roughly. And let's say the um, um, uh, molecules within this 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 volume of this this fringe fields. Um, see actually the electric field from the uh, uh, um, yeah from from the superconducting qubit. So meaning uh, let's say only let's say the molecules in the tardigrade seeing this uh, field from this um, um, two uh, let's say capacitor plate from the transform qubit um, interact let's say with the with the um, um, transform qubits and with this are let's say entangled. It's not actually the whole tardigrade itself. It's a small subfraction. Um, in the volume of the tardigrade. Um, I hope that. So you mean? Answer. Uh, uh, you, you mean like uh, some somewhere in the surface on the surface of the tardigrade uh, uh, that are entangled with the uh, the two qubits. It's it's not necessarily on the in the surface because the tardigrade itself is also just a few micron in size. It's uh, within, let's say, uh, a, a fraction of the volume of the tardigrade. Uh, but um, how, how do you know? How do you know that uh, uh, the uh, fraction or which fraction? So we have done, let's say, um, simulations to actually um, uh, see, let's say, um, uh, using finite elements and stuff like that. To um, see uh, or to yeah, um, simulate um, where, let's say, the electric field um, of the superconducting qubit uh, couples uh, to the tardigrade. 
And um, there we actually have, let's say, uh, I've seen that, let's say, a small volume um, of, of the tardigrade um, um, close to the surface is, uh, let's say, uh, uh, mostly interacting or strongly interacting with the uh, transport fuel. Um, so, is it possible that so so yeah so basically the deduction comes from the simulation right, and then um, uh, I suppose that um, you compare the simulations um, uh, output um, with the uh, overall let's say the frequency that you measure um, in the uh, frequency measured, and then um, deduce that. It is uh, uh, entangled. A part of it, part of it, uh, uh, is entangled. Uh, so two questions. So basically, that if I have, it has nothing to do with the special, uh, the composition of the tardigrade. It has just has to do with, uh, let's say, uh, the uh, the the low temperature that presumably that all the atoms are in their ground state. Um, so if I replace it with something else that the inanimate or anything else would get the same result, uh, right? And uh, so that's the first question. And second question, it is, um, is it possible to uh, any other, because this is from simulation, right? So, so not, uh, not direct, not coming from the direct measurement. Uh, is it possible to, uh, I, I think the simulation, what kind of simulation is it? Uh, is it the density function theory or, or some other models? And then uh, uh, I guess third question is, um, is it possible to produce the same results with say a classical system? Uh, the, yeah, uh, so, so these are the three questions right now. Uh, thank you. Yes, yes. Okay, let me let me try to answer that. Um, maybe maybe the first question. So, in fact, there's uh, let's say for, for, for all purposes, uh, or let's say um, at the end of the day, um, doing let's say the same experiment uh, with um, let's say another. Um, 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 Material instead of let's say tardigrade and something else, which has let's say the same uh, plausibility um, as the tardigrade, uh, would actually um, um, yeah give give let's say very very similar results. Um, the let's say um, there's let's say for let's say seeing the let's say the shift in the uh, uh, frequency of the qubit, which determines the coupling. Um, it doesn't doesn't matter if it's uh, alive or or, or or dead. Let's say uh, one could even let's say think let's say having a tardigrade there, um, a piece of dust would let's say give let's say a similar similar shape. Um, what we could do in the experiment is let's say only see um, the let's say um, how the let's say tardigrade has acted on the let's say. Uh, Qubit itself by looking actually, let's say, at the shift. We were not able to measure the 
tardigrade um, 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 on, on, on its own. Um, If this is, let's say, um, 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 sort of a, let's say, entangled state uh, directly, uh, maybe Vladko, do you want to join in here? Yes, I think uh, there is one. Um, so I think this question of uh, the, the crucial question there is, uh, as you said, is is whether uh, there is a kind of semi, what we would call a semi-classical model of this. Um, and let me let me say what this would mean. It would mean that the qubit is treated quantum mechanically in the model, but um, the tardigrade um, is a, a kind of model. There's a classical effect on on top of this, and of course we do this all the time in uh, in physics. When you when you look at, for instance, um, you know a photon propagating through a uh, through a material, a dielectric material, you will say that the dielectric is effectively a classical medium that changes the refractive index. Um, and basically, the, the, the phase that the photon picks up as it propagates is somehow explained in this way, in a classical way. So the photon is quantum, the, um, the dielectric is treated classically, and that's why we call it semi-classical. Um, you could, of course, have a description like that in this case. You could think of the tardigrade as a kind of classical system which uh, modifies the energy structure of the qubit. However, one should, and of course, if you want to really argue against this view, if you want to con experimentally challenge this, then you must do what we were already saying. You, you must somehow be able to zoom into the tardigrade and measure directly these tardigrade degrees of freedom that respond uh, to the qubit, you know, this induced dipole that gets induced in the tardigrade because you create it um, uh, in, inside the qubit. Uh, we haven't done that. So, so uh, to really close this kind of loophole, if you like, and this semi-classical description, you really must be able to address uh, both of these systems independently, each of them really uh, independently. However, having said this, one has to remember that these semi-classical descriptions are frequently inconsistent uh, from all sorts of other perspectives. For instance, it's very hard to account for certain um, things like the law of conservation of energy if you have a hybrid system where half of the system is classical and the other system is quantum. Um, and, and so because of all sorts of other, uh, what you would call possibly more circumstantial kind of evidence, it's not a direct evidence like me measuring the tardigrade directly, but somehow it's indirect evidence that you, can, that you can use in order to really say that the only consistent way of treating these things um, is in fact to really quantumly treat both the tardigrade and the qubit, in which case, uh, it's it's obviously an inescapable conclusion that some something inside the tardigrade, and we don't really know uh, how large this is, um, spatially speaking, how many degrees of freedom are involved, but something inside the, the tardigrade really is quantum and responds in a quantum mechanical way by getting entangled to the tardigrade. But certainly the the evidence as it stands, it's not completely watertight, and these are 
obviously the things that I think would be the first things we would like to uh, improve and probe better. I think uh, the, the first question really is, um, what are the relevant degrees of freedom uh, that respond in this case? How big is this? How macroscopic is this superposition that we are talking about? And while we understand this really well, when it comes to the superconducting qubit, we really have, uh, I think, very little understanding what this could be uh, inside the tardigrade. And I think that's kind of the, 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 key, the key question as I see it. Yeah, so, and also the, the number of uh, degree of freedom there uh, is a question, right? The, the huge, yes. huge number of degree of freedom. Uh, yeah, and um, so, so it's kind of hard to pinpoint the which is entangled, which is not or exact or, or whether it is. Yes. Um, yeah, and then uh, what about the first question is the, if you, uh, I, I didn't hear, uh, I think um, uh, it was mentioned, it was uh, addressed, but I wasn't sure. Uh, so the, if you replace it with something else, uh, it would, uh, it would, it would work as not, I mean, not work as well, but it will have, you will have the same response. Would that be uh, yes or no? Yes. I Yes, I think you're, you're right. Um, this, um, this comes up frequently in, um, in uh, many of these discussions when, when um, I go to conferences on quantum biology. Um, uh, this question comes up very frequently. Um, and I think it's related to whether this feature would really be um, somehow important or even intrinsic for the living system. Um, and, and I think you are, you are right that um, um, an inanimate object would frequently respond very similarly. You could think of, like I said, an ordinary dielectric um, as modifying um, the refractive index in much the same way so that the frequency shifts that you observe ultimately are comparable, in fact, to what Reiner observed in the experiment. So, so certainly you could think of uh, non-living systems uh, producing the same effect. Um, and, and I think this, this too is a very interesting question, really. Um, you know, are there some um, quantum effects that are really somehow uh, crucial to biological functionality? Do they only occur in some uh, biological scenarios and things like that? It, it seems to me that, that this particular experiment and an inanimate object would, would do the same. And that's a very good point. Okay. Uh, what about the second question? I was just curious what um, model you're using to simulate? Is it like, say, density function um, uh, theory model or, or something else? Or you just, uh, uh, I, I suppose you're not actually uh, simulating all that mm. number of harmonic oscillators, uh, just, just That's maybe right. uh, some approximation. Okay. Yes, it's a very simple model, exactly what you said. Um, because um, I think I've written a bit more extensively about it. I have a couple of pages, um, a note that I put on archive um, a few weeks ago. And I kind of try to um, offer models with an increasing degree of complexity to take more and more degrees of, of, of freedom into account. But as you actually pointed out, it never goes to, to the degree of detail that, that you need uh, uh, that you would use maybe if you were really doing uh, some complicated chemistry 
simulation. So certainly density functional theory and things like that um, don't really need to be used here. Uh, it would be an overkill given that experimentally really what you are ultimately measuring are the frequency shifts and you can really account for them um, in a much simpler way uh, namely through you know coupled harmonic oscillators and then of course you can add more harmonic oscillators to represent other degrees of freedom but i think nothing really more than that uh, is required in this case very similar to a typical uh, probably uh, thinking of a dielectric uh, and dielectric affecting the refractive index is maybe the right model uh, uh, and, and the complexity to think in this case. Okay, so then uh, how many, uh, what is the number of uh, harmonic uh, oscillators, a couple of harmonic oscillators do uh, you use uh, in the simulation? That's uh, that's completely open actually, because again, given that you have to account only for, for the frequency shift, even even a simple model with two coupled harmonic oscillators will do the job. You know, one representing the uh, the superconducting qubit and the other one uh, representing um, a collective, I would say, degrees of freedom of the tardigrade. I mean, even incidentally for the qubit, you don't really need a harmonic. First of all, it's an unharmonic oscillator and you are using the lower uh, the lowest two energy levels. So it's really just a two level system. Um, coupled to a to a harmonic oscillator, so much like what, what one would call a kind of James Cummings model, um, and and this is simply because um, we have this big uncertainty about the um, uh, the kind of the exact um, uh, you know the, the exact properties of the molecules that would be responsible for this in the tardigrade. You know, if you did know these molecules more, you could take into account all the vibrational degrees of freedom, not just electronic and so on. And then you'd be talking about a much more complex system. Um, so really, the number of harmonic oscillators would depend uh, on, on how many of these modes are engaged uh, in your response. And, and at, the, at the moment, we really have no way of knowing this. Yeah, no, no, I, I, the, uh, uh, the qubit, I'm not uh, talking about the qubit. Uh, yeah, as, as you said, the qubit can be uh, the, uh, simulated uh, very simply. It's like the uh, basically two-level uh, two system. And That's uh, it. I was just uh, worrying about, yeah, I, I was just worrying about the, uh, the, the particles in the tardigrade. And um, I'm just thinking that whether if you even with the harmonic oscillators uh, simulation uh, approximation uh, does the the increasing incre increment of the uh, degree of freedom uh, how does that affect um, the results of your simulation the uh, when you yeah increase the degree of freedom uh, I don't think you could see that uh, maybe I can I can check with Reiner just uh... Uh, maybe he can tell us in a bit more detail, but I think this is very hard given that uh, what you're ultimately measuring, at least in this first experiment, are, are these shifts that you get uh, from the presence of the tardigrade. This second experiment, of course, I think uh, builds on, 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 on already this hybrid system. So I don't, I don't think it's relevant at all when the second qubit gets engaged. I mean, Reiner, would you say that it's, it's difficult to, to say more from the experiment, right? 
Yes. Uh, well, okay. Uh, may maybe it's sort of um, one could see a hint. Uh, I mean, of course, you have, let's say, uh, um, too many degrees of freedom, the whole system becomes the environment. Um, so meaning actually that um, the coherence time of the system will decrease because it's coupled to effectively environment. So I, I would say actually we have, let's say, a finite amount of degrees of the freedom in, in, inside the system. And with this, actually, this we have seen um, that the, let's say, T1 time uh, um, of the system did not actually change, of the coupled system did not change uh, uh, significantly. Um, that would be, let's say, uh, another way to, let's say, look at, let's say, the amount of let's say, degrees of the freedom we actually have within inside the, 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 the coupled of the system. Yeah, so so the the degree of um, you you're referring to the degree of freedom in the uh, tardigrade, right, or the the modeling for modeling the tardigrade, right? Right. So let's say uh, for let's say um, modeling the tardigrade and seeing actually the um, shift um, um, in the or let's say for, for modeling the shift in the the, the frequency which we actually um, would um, expect. One can just use, let's say, um, um, normal, um, um, yeah, uh, electromagnetic software, finite element methods to actually um, look at the, uh, let's say, uh, use a medium with a certain probability, and then actually uh, look at, let's say, the, the frequency shift. One would actually, um, 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 yeah, observe in the in the experiments. Um, so you could actually um, um, model to a certain extent um, the, let's say, um, response of a direct medium directly using normal um, um, software you usually use for modeling electromagnetics. Okay. Yeah, does anyone else maybe want to raise a question? Um, just checking. Uh, please flash your mic um, when you have a question, please. Hello. Um, uh, yeah, this is, uh, uh, I think, very interesting because uh, quantum and biology uh, together, uh, you know, there's, uh, I think, uh, uh, the frontier uh in uh, of uh, science right so uh my question is the uh, um, uh on the i mean probably follow up uh, uh, uh from hansen i mean i i, I was actually uh, listening and not completely uh, uh understanding but uh, uh i i just wanted to uh uh, uh to check that uh so at this point, the um, I mean the experiments and uh, so th there there are two qubits and there's a uh, a frozen animal uh, tardigrade in between, and uh, you were able to uh, see changes to the original entangled uh, states. And uh, is that correct? I mean, I haven't read the paper yet. 
Yes, that, that's that's um, described it, um, um, the, the the experiment exactly. So we had um, let's say um, let's say this experiment has had these two stages. Uh, first, we had let's say the qubit, uh, put the um, tardigrade on in the tan state, um, which um, um, as was also pointed out by Hansen. Um, let's say it could be also um, uh, well, it's a was was a R metabolic uh, was an R metabolic state, so very much close to to um, um, a non living non living state. Um, this was coupled to the um, um, qubit, um, where you see let's say respond from the qubit uh, on this, um, and then let's say this coupled state or this this dress state uh, one could say. Um, was covered again with it a um, second qubit to actually make let's say base state of this um, covered uh, qubit uh, tardigrade system with a um, second uh, transform qubit. So uh, I guess two uh, questions. The uh, so uh, I mean um, one of them is the after you raise the temperature and the tardigrade just uh, recovered and uh, nothing changed, right? So it's uh, uh, very well alive. And uh, the other is the uh, the evidence. <clears throat> I mean, at this point, there's completely no doubts that is the. I mean, uh, yeah. I guess Hansen asked if you change substitute that. Tardigrade with, with some other objects in similar uh, uh, geometrical aspects. Uh, have you tried that uh, already or, or not? Well, so um, the, to the to the first part of your question, um, right after we have let's say uh, brought back the tardigrade to the um, um, yeah, normal ambient conditions, um, so room temperature. And, and normal pressure, um, the tardigrade um, changed from the tan state to the let's say, normal living state and could actually see uh, it, it was living again. Um, having said this, uh, maybe I should also um, emphasize that um, it was, let's say, very crucial um, the way how uh, we actually um, um, brought back um, the tardigrade from, let's say, its uh, cryptobiosis state to the um, 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 ambient conditions uh, again. Um, so we could, we have to actually um, um, increase the temperatures uh, or the temperature uh, very um, 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 slowly. And also, uh, what was uh, seemed to be also very important is to actually um, do the same with the pressure. So actually increase uh, the pressure extremely slowly. It doesn't matter so much that let's say in the, in the range, uh, if you are let's say 10 to minus um, eight or so minibar, um, it doesn't matter if you increase from 10 to minus eight to 10 to minus four or fast, but let's say um, it's in the range of about 10 to minus three to, to normal uh, room temperature, this has to be um, um, increased slowly. Um, also for the temperatures uh, itself, it, let's say, um, um, yeah, probably something, let's say, if, if you're at, let's say, medicabin and you go to, let's say, minus, uh, uh, or let's say to maybe something like uh, 200 Kelvin, they actually, the gradient doesn't really matter. It actually matters more when actually, um, um, yeah, in the range when um, 
mortar starts starts uh, to melt again. Um, okay, this that's answer to the, the first question. The second question um, was again um, using let's say a, a living system and let's say a dead system. If we would see the same uh, response on the qubit, which we would actually see if they have the same let's say uh, porosibility um, in this case. I see. So there's actually, I noticed there's a, I followed a, a earlier uh, 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 experiments by Kohler and uh, et cetera at all uh, on the macroscopic, uh, they call it, uh, entanglement with, uh, I think, uh, oscillating drums. And uh, uh, I mean, in, in, in macroscopic, macroscopic uh, uh, scale. And uh, they cited uh, uh, Simon Dorn's uh, criterion for uh, to, to, to say that it, it's, it's entangled. Is that uh, uh, relevant here? Or do you consider that's an interesting uh, uh, work re relevant to your future uh, uh, research? So uh, um, let's say the the um, work is of course um, extremely um, interesting and relevant. Um, it is let's say um, what what we see to a certain extent is it's not really a a Schrodinger cat um, experiment where you have let's say a very macroscopic system um, um, entangled. Um, like let's say uh, let's say this for instance mechanical oscillators um it's actually the let's say molecules inside uh, the tardigrades itself um or let's say the the or let's say a connection of molecules inside 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 the tardigrade um right Yeah, so so maybe you know further, uh, with a very uh, clever and uh, uh, careful experiment, you can uh, somehow go into the macroscopic object here and see some type of uh, time and uh, spatial, uh, uh, you know, uh, how to say uh, scale. I mean, kind of a phenomena and. Uh, Pointing to that's actually a microscopic entanglement. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking, uh, bring ideas. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, so again, so this this are let's say um, maybe what we have shown is just the the starting step for actually uh, the more um, um, exciting experiments um, where we let's say can go to let's say bigger systems. And let's also look at uh, microscopic entanglement of, let's say, some maybe microscopic degrees of freedom. So, for instance, uh, motion would be something uh, to look at as well. But this you can't do with, let's say, swimming in qubits. Um, for this, you may need some some uh, micro um, um, oscillators. Um, but yeah, this is uh, um, could be done, let's say, in future experiments or uh, future work. 
Um, Raikou, do you want to uh, add there a few words? I, I think maybe there's all, there was also this experience with the um, um, bacterias. Um, yes, um, yes, I think um, my um, uh, friend Dave Coles, actually, who is uh, in Sheffield now, but he was um, at Oxford with me at the time. Um, he um, did uh, an experiment with a living bacterium inside um, an optical cavity and coupled uh, also observing um, um, frequency shifts that you would normally uh, see um, in a certain place uh, when the bacterium was in a different environment. Now this could be shifted because of the strong coupling of the bacterium to the light uh, inside the cavity. They are certainly interesting. I mean, they, they are kind of um, along similar lines to uh, what we've been discussing. Um, of course, the bacterium is far simpler than a, than a tardigrade. Um, uh, the only uh, the, the difference here, of course, is that it was done at room temperature, and you could really see that the bacterium was um, alive during this uh, experiment. Um, uh, however, even for an experiment of this kind, I, th I think it's still correct. Uh, that you could uh, mimic this with a with an inanimate object. I don't think it was crucial, really, that the experiment was done with a living system. It just was impressive to us um, uh, physicists, certainly, that that a biological system can actually be um, in a, manipulated to be in in this kind of quantum mechanical state. The only thing I wanted to add to this um, various macros. By the way, our field um, um, is is full of people making all sorts of macroscopic um, entangled states. Um, one just has to be a little bit careful when, when you use the word macroscopic, because um, even though sometimes people uh, may um, use systems that look big, um, when you really look into it, what, what happens is that the degrees of freedom that do contribute to this entanglement end up being very small. Effectively, you, you are creating um, two qubits worth of entanglement, even though your systems might be far bigger, physically speaking. Their response comes from a, a far simpler subsystem, if you like. So, you know, people claim, for instance, to entangle two diamonds. And of course, they didn't entangle the whole diamond. It's not that the diamond is in a, in a superposition of being in two different locations at the same time. What happens instead is that one atom inside this, in fact, one spin, if you like, inside this diamond couples to another spin, another qubit inside another diamond. So I think one has to be very careful um, calling some of these things macroscopic. I think we're still exploring what that means, and, and we are kind of making steps in the macroscopic direction. But it's possibly fair to say that no one has really made a genuine macroscopic. I mean, of course, you know, there is no clear cutoff. You know, how many atoms should contribute to, to a superposition so that we call this macroscopic. There, there is no answer to this question. But I think genuinely no one has really created um, a macroscopic... So, so, for instance, a bacterium being superposed across two physical locations at the same time. This would be impressive. It's even questionable whether this is possible, by the way. Maybe this is too complex 
to ever be able to execute physically. But I think these are these are very interesting questions. So the experiments we are all discussing and the ones you mentioned are all to do with the subsets of these systems um, that actually do contribute to the quantum superposition. But 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 it's not clear that any of them should really be called you know genuinely macroscopic. I suppose that, uh, thank you for. Uh, yeah, sir. Quick, quickly. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for uh, both uh, great answers. So, uh, when you uh, mentioned the uh, uh, indeterministic uh, uh, state, I mean, uh, currently uh, still, uh, I mean, on the question of uh, macroscopic uh, uh, entanglement. Yes. Uh, I'm just curious the uh, because I, I I'm definitely a layperson and. Uh, uh, because there, there is. I mean, in, for example, in Kotler's uh, uh, paper, uh, referring to the Simon Duan uh, criterion, uh, if I understand, I mean, uh, uh, just very brief reading is has to do with the matrices, the matrix of the system. You know, whether you know it shows uh, shows us uh, it's entangled or or, or not. The, is this still that criterion itself is still in a, a, a research stage, or it's, a, it's oh, well accepted? Good, good question. Good question. Uh, the criterion is is mathematically uh, perfectly sound. It's a good criterion. Uh, of course, people are investigating even theoretically uh, different criteria. We have all sorts of criteria that would work in the in the macroscopic limit. You can measure things like. Um, heat capacity, magnetic response, magnetic susceptibility, all of these are nice entanglement witnesses. And the one you mentioned by Duani, in fact, applies to system, systems that are as simple as two harmonic oscillators. And in fact, that's perfectly suitable even to the experiment that, that Reiner did. So it's, it's nice that you mentioned that criterion. It is possible to use it uh, in our context as well, but one just has to still bear in mind that whether this is macroscopic or it can certainly be applied to a macroscopic system, uh, but it can also be applied to a very simple system that only has two uh, harmonic oscillators. Uh, the, the thing that's crucial really is somehow to be able to measure corresponding properties of each of these harmonic oscillators. Um, so you would have to measure something like the position and the momentum of, of each of them and then look at the correlations and the strength of these correlations tells you really whether the state is genuinely quantum entangled or not. So I think that criterion is great. It's certainly applicable to, um, to our situation, uh, but it doesn't necessarily tell you whether something is macroscopic or not. It just tells you if it's entangled or not. Uh, Vladko and Reiner, I have a question for you regarding your beautiful paper, which I very much enjoyed reading. Um, and potentially someone else has already asked this, um, uh, but I just joined. Unfortunately, I just saw that you were having this event now. Um, so I wanted to ask uh, in what sense the tardigrade is entangled with the qubit. So it looks like it could also just be a dielectric, which is basically shifting the resonance of your high Q resonator. So I come from optics. I have a completely different background. So my question might be completely uh, off here, but maybe you could uh, explain to someone with like my background how um, 
yeah, this is entangled rather than basically the tardigrade acting as a dielectric shifting the resonance. Rainer, do you want to have a go? I think it's something we touched on actually um, uh, a, a kind of a, a five or ten minutes ago. Um, and we had oh, a discussion about it. Oh, I'm so sorry about, about it. that. I'll listen to the replay in that case. I think the brief answer is that um, certainly there is a, um, a range of models that that we can use. And I think I talked a little bit about the what, what you would call a semi-classical uh, model, where you treat the qubit quantumly and you treat the tardigrade as, um, as a dielectric. Uh, and it's certainly possible to do that. I think that there is no question about it. And given that if you can experimentally really only extract a very small number of parameters, then uh, definitely your model doesn't need to be much uh, more complicated to account for that. Um, what's problematic with um, with um, with semi-classical models is that they're inconsistent frequently for all sorts of other reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to go too much into that. Uh, uh, some of these uh, failures are kind of um, known. Um, and um, However, to, to really conclude, if you want to experimentally conclusively show uh, that there is entanglement between the two, uh, it would require something that we don't have in, in Reiner's experiment, which is a kind of a degree of control to be able to measure the tardigrade directly rather than just by a coupling to the qubit. So some kind of probe that would go into the electronic degrees of freedom of the tardigrade um, and, and measure some kind of complementary observables independently to the measurements of the qubit would certainly be necessary um, in order to, to, to close this and to kind of clinch the argument that this is entangled. So we have, we have what one would call kind of more circumstantial evidence that this is the case, but not a more direct experimental evidence. Oh, thank you. Yeah, to... no, that that actually makes a lot of sense um, because just from a simple um, argumentation, I could also imagine that this kind of resonance shift uh, would just be um, a result of yeah, just there being a clump of dielectric essentially. But yeah, adding like a more direct probe in the tardigrade would actually be great. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think it's necessary, and that seems like a kind of one of the following kind of logical steps to uh, to undertake in the future. Okay, thanks a lot for your answer. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So, with regard to the uh, the diamond example uh, you mentioned, I suppose that um, the two atoms in um, in in entanglement are pre-located. Is that right? And then uh, that's also related to the previous question I asked, uh, which was uh, repeated uh, by Xin uh, Hui. Uh, the if the the uh, if we know that uh, there's only small, very small part of the tardigrade is in supposedly entangled, uh, suspected to be in entanglement, uh, and then you don't know which one it is, even if you have a probe. How are you going to probe um, the the tardigrade? I, uh, presumably, you have to either establish a lot of probes or have to kind of move the probe around. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, so the, 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 this is uh, my question so far. Yes, uh, very good point. I think um, in order to be able to uh, probe the tardigrade more directly, you would certainly uh, need to understand um, uh, which degrees of freedom uh, are relevant. And then on top of it, you would have to understand how to interact with them, how to probe them. Uh, so this is crucial. Um, it would, um, uh, on the positive side, um, once you know that, it doesn't necessarily imply that you really have to measure each of these constituents uh, at the microscopic level. Uh, as we heard, um, uh, th there are criteria that actually um, could be um, macroscopic. They come from kind of thermodynamics uh, as a collective response. And maybe all it would take is to is to look at the collective electric response of whatever the molecules are that are engaged uh, in this kind of um, um, state, entangled state uh, with the qubit. But I think it's certainly um, impo important first to identify that before we can then see how to couple to it independently and how to probe it. The difficulty as I see it, other than identifying this, is actually to find these degrees of freedom that we can measure. So, so strictly speaking, you, you need kind of two complementary degrees of freedom of the qubit, which is easy, of course, because the qubit can be manipulated in all possible ways, quantum ways. But then you equally need two kind of complementary quantum degrees of freedom inside that tardigrade and you need to be able to measure them um, and the question is can we identify that um, uh, why is this a question because if if this system is very complicated and, and I think Reiner touched on that as well the, the question is whether it's too uh, noisy uh, for certain measurements to be really performed accurately or quickly enough it's always to do with the with the relative um times of course how quick your measurement is versus how quick the noise is um and so this has to be of course first understood and studied carefully before we really choose the right kind of uh, measurement to make and so this is this is a very important point that you are raising Okay, thank you. So, uh, coming back to the previous example that you mentioned, which is which has nothing to do with your experiment, you said the uh, there were bacteria uh, also uh, entangled yes. with. Uh, yeah, but then you also mentioned that it is done in room temperature. So how uh, now in your experiment uh, it is plausible because um, the. Uh, the the uh, the temperature is uh, close to absolute zero, and then um, zero Kelvin, and then uh, so presumably there, uh, uh, most of, almost all of the uh, atomic states are in the ground state. But then how do you explain the uh, bacteria uh, that claim that bacteria is in 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 the uh, entanglement uh, because it's in the room temperature, and then you can have lots of state and so many degrees freedom and then the energy that uh, distribution all that um how do you how do you how do they i mean not would not you <laughs> how do they can claim it's an entanglement yes i think i i think the claim there is because you are you are studying the electronic transitions inside the bacterium whose energies are well above 
the 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 room temperature energy you know the kt the boltzmann constant time times the temperature and actually this is true for ordinary atoms as well all of the atoms uh, at room temperature are effectively in the ground state the reason being that the thermal energy at room temperature is about 40 times four zero times smaller than the energy that, it, that is needed to excite uh, the atom from the ground state to the first electronic excited state. So even room temperature effectively, if, you if you're looking at the right transitions, um, is in fact not sufficient uh, to get things um, away from the ground state. Um, in Reiner's experiment, and I think Reiner can maybe say a bit more about it, uh, we are talking about superconducting qubits and uh, and the and the energy the relevant energies uh, that we are discussing that are very different they're very smaller and you really need to operate at a very low temperature to make sure that you are really in the ground state and you're not exciting the system but that's because the energy gap is is much smaller than the energy gap that was relevant uh, inside the bacterium i don't know if reiner you, you want to say a bit more about this yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so, so let's say yeah. So, if you want to, let's say, uh, mentioned before, um, bring let's say living or some system and um, tangle this with a, with a quantum mechanical system, um, then let's say if you're going to um, let's say if you're going for superconducting uh, qubits, for example, um, they are working at let's say typical frequencies or energies of gigahertz. So meaning actually the environment here um, where the system is operating has to be, um, or yeah, the, the energies of the environment has to be lower than um, H bar omega with a frequency uh, omega of, of gigahertz. So meaning this will be in the range of midi Kelvin, where let's say the uh, peak in the back body radiation will be uh, below um, gigahertz. Um, the, the, let's say, um, experience with the bacteria um, is actually went, as uh, Vladko was saying, to, let's say, higher energies. So they are actually the um, energies which are relevant are um, optical frequencies, um, which can actually um, be used uh, in inside, uh, let's say, ambient uh, environment at, let's say, 300 Kelvin uh, room temperature. And also the timescales uh, uh, for this um, are much, much uh, faster. Um, let's say at room temperatures, whereas uh, for the superconducting part, the time scales are in terms of uh, uh, yeah, microseconds to let's say uh, roughly uh, ten microseconds. So it's uh, let's say depending on which which um, um, energy range you are, you have to change let's say um, um, the or you have to change the time scales of your quantum system and also the let's say energy spacing of of the um, quantum system. I see. So basically, the uh, the room temperature bacteria they using a say laser that um, the 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 energy excitation uh, excitation energy differences uh, uh, far larger. The uh, 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 the different energy level uh, is far larger than the uh, the room temperature energy can provide. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay.
but uh, I guess uh, that you mm, have to put it like uh, the the amount of yeah energy uh, in okay so I, I it's a case of probability or or yeah I have to look at the numbers right so um, if um, the it's a yeah it's a question of probability whether the bacteria or the molecules are in the low uh, small probability case that all the energy um, the thermal energy that called concentrate at uh, one moment into the excitation of one atom or something that's possible but uh, low probability I guess uh, yeah, if, yeah, if your yeah, energy excitation energy is high enough uh, okay go ahead. sorry yes yeah, yeah, exactly um, so um, to, to, to be fair it's still let's say a thermal state however the probability of the excitation to an excited state extremely low um, that's that's uh, how how I would uh, describe this. Um, but it's, it's coming coming let's say a bit from the background of atomic physics and um, also um, let's say uh, laser cooling, how to cool actually atoms down. Um, we can actually cool let's say atoms to the let's say to ground states of the traps. So if you're using normal laser cooling, we get still a thermal um, 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 state with let's say a very low probability. Um, let's say of exciting higher um, 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 vibrational states. So again, it's a thermal state, but the probability is um, um, very low that it's that you that the system excited in a, in, a, in a higher state. That's exactly what you have uh, mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. I had a quick question. This is Dennis. What happens when you, um, when they come to temperature too rapidly in terms of when you're rewarming them? Um, so when we, let's say, um, increase the temperature and the pressure um, too rapidly what we actually have seen is that um yeah the, the tardigrade so yeah that's just by evidence uh, what, what we have seen is that the uh, tardigrade will not um, um yeah leave its tan state in fact actually uh, what what we have seen is that um um uh, the tardigrade is was somehow um, um, disintegrating. Um, why is this exactly happening uh, when you're doing it uh, too rapidly? Um, I'm not, let's say, 100% sure. I, I actually don't know uh, because I'm not a biologist. Um, Yes, uh, but but let's say um, this is uh, from, from the evidence that uh, uh, if this is done, let's say too quickly, um, 
heating up and increasing the pressure, they, they won't uh, uh, survive. That was certainly what I expected to hear. I was thinking more of like a situation where it was not under pressure, but just temperature differentials. And what I expected to hear was that if it was in a crystalline form, I know that some tardigrades, I think the ones that have been found off-world in outer space, uh, they assume a crystalline form at some point. And obviously, if you expand that form too rapidly, it's going to cause chaotic failure in the reconstitution of their life. Yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, so let's say we have used, uh, let's say, a tardigrade, uh, species of tardigrade uh, found, found in Denmark, um, which um, um, has or was, was shown to be, let's say, fairly robust uh, in, let's say, if we expose it to, to harsh environments. Um, and let's say also bring it uh, bring it uh, uh, back to life. Um, yes, and the let's say um, yeah, as 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 you have said that um, if you let's say change the environmental condition uh, to let's say be more adverse, um, the tardigrade goes into this uh, tan state. Um, which um, is a state where, let's say, the tardigrade expels all its, um, um, let's say, liquid or water content, um, and um, let's say, curds, or let's say, decreases the volume. Um, and apparently, in this state, it's uh, let's say, it's a very robust state, which is able to, um, um, yeah, uh, sustain in this, let's say, um, harsh environment. So um, inside uh, the tardigrade, most likely there's, uh, let's say there's no um, liquid uh, liquids anymore, which can actually freeze. Because if it's starting to freeze um, and crystals are forming within the tardigrade, this can actually also destroy the um, um, organism. A delicate procedure to be sure. <laughs> Uh, yes, I have a question. Uh, I was wondering, is there a, the implication maybe? So my understanding, I came late to the room, but it seems from what Vladko said uh, is that we have a large quantum effect on a very small part of a larger object, which is the tardigrade. Is so you would assume, therefore, that it really didn't have any effect on keeping it in cryptobiosis. But then there was the statement in the thing I read here at the link is that it actually broke a record. So is the inf possible implication is that even though there should be just a small effect on or a big a big quantum effect on a very small part of the larger object, the the uh, tardigrade, is the implication that maybe something else happened, which is why the tardigrade was able to remain this way in breaking records, or is that the possible implication? Um, okay, maybe I, I jump in, maybe Vlad uh, can um, add to this uh, later. Um, so the measurements which we have done with the tardigrade and the sorghum qubit um, have no implication 
on the state uh, of the target grade after the measurements. Um, so, so meaning, uh, let's say this this record which we have done, let's say uh, having the target grade inside the dilution free generator for 420 hours at this very very low pressures, um, the target grade would be capable of doing this also without doing this experiments which we have done. So there's, um, it just happened to be a record probably yes, created yes, exactly. by the conditions, exactly. not that some implication of something else happening. Okay, thank you. Exactly. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, However, it would be it would be very interesting maybe in some future experiments um, to see if there's some manipulation, let's say, within uh, microwave frequencies uh, on the tardigrade. Um, that this maybe has some effects later on um, um, on the tardigrade when warming up. But we are, let's say, far away from, from this um, situation right now. Yeah, if anyone else has a question, um, please go ahead. But then I wanted in the meantime ask, um, if you are still fine answering questions or if you have to go uh, because you've been talking for like for 90 minutes. Uh, Dr. So. Rina, I do have a not question, but just a statement because I recognize the name of someone on the stage. And so, um, and we're actually, is it all right if I mention a club of ours later <laughs> on today? Yeah, so hi, Vlatko. Uh, I'm a friend here with Keith and also a, a guy named Andre Vajnov on the clubhouse. And we're actually, uh, we're doing a, uh, we have a club called Girdles Parallax, and I think a lot of people are interested. We're actually doing the book, The Science. We have a kind of a book club, and we're actually discussing the science of can and can't tonight. And I, I saw your name had been mentioned in there as an acknowledgement. So I uh, take a moment here to uh, promote that. And um, if you were interested in joining us, that would be great as well as everyone else on the stage who probably has interest in these kinds of topics. So we are doing that book tonight. Uh, I, I, all I can add is, is, is a great book. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what uh, I, I, my only, or the only contribution to, uh, to that book uh, from, from my side of things is, is my drawings actually. Uh, they are not that good, but I think Kiara was very nice to, uh, to actually put them in the book. Okay. And, and, uh, um, that's it. But it's a great book. Yes, we, we, I've been enjoying it, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about it tonight. Great, great. I wanted to add, um, Eric and I. We have been talking to, um, you know, we we will have a lot of guest invited speakers, scientists, and we have been having them. We thought maybe to do kind of a day on Clubhouse because you know most people that we invite they just join. And uh, we thought maybe they could have a day on Clubhouse and go maybe not to just one club, but then uh, to different ones. Maybe, Ethan, we can, we can talk about that idea. So when the speakers come to Clubhouse, that they will have like reached the, the biggest audience possible by going around in clubs that are interesting for them. Sure, I'd be happy to discuss it. Or Andre, Keith, also. I also should mention it's a, it's an informal book club with the odd rule that you don't actually have to have read the book to participate. Um, 
always because we know uh, a lot of book clubs fail because not everyone is up to date exactly on the reading. So we've made sort of a, we started off with just the three of us, but we've uh, uh, enjoyed having other people join on as well. Uh, and we did that just because the, the, the pragmatic realities that hardly everyone in book clubs that I've experienced or talked with people ever have enough people who fully read the book or they've read half of it or some people have read it six months earlier. So we figured we'd, uh, we'd make a, a club and give an experiment to a book club that didn't quite read the book where some people have and some people haven't, but it's actually turned out to work out quite well. Yeah, I should come. Thank you for mentioning it. Oh, we appreciate it. Yeah, if anyone else has questions, um, I know that there are a few on the stage that didn't have a chance yet to speak. So, yeah, please flash your mic, go ahead um, and, uh, yeah, ask your question. Just quickly, uh, which is it again? Sorry. I'm sorry, could, were you asking me a question, Hanson? Yeah, just quickly, uh, which was the title of the book again? Uh, the book is called The Science of Can and Can't by Chiara, I don't know how to pronounce her name exactly, Chiara Marletto. And um, that is the book we're doing tonight in Girdle's Paradox, the club Girdle's Paradox. Okay. Parallax, sorry, Girdle's Parallax. And sure. I'm, I'm, uh, I have a very uh, basic question regarding quantum biology. Uh, maybe somebody already asked this because I arrived a little bit late um, to the to the presentation today. But um, so I recently um, came across a an article that claimed that like some some like um, processes uh, of the of the of the cell membrane were better described by quantum information, I think is uh, by Michael Levine or Levine. Um, and uh, I just wanted to know if uh, maybe it, there's been a, a recently a new discovery. I, I'm not really an expert on this topic of any like natural process within biology at a, let's say, just as as you guys mentioned, it's difficult to talk about macro macro scale, but perhaps a biological process that um, requires, like uh, let's say, a lot of machinery uh, behind it that uses any quantum effect, uh, but in, 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 let's say that has been operating within the natural realm, not engineered by humans. My understanding is, you know, no, but it's always the sort of holy grail that I think people want to hand wave and make everything quantum consciousness, you know? So, I mean, the non-trivial quantum stuff, I think the, my understanding has been that the most likely one that people thought would be an odor detection and taste receptors, but that keeps not really popping up. And of course, like Penrose and people have kind of conjectured these uh, phenomena, the non-trivial quantum phenomena, and somehow linking them to some sort of uh, important part of either living systems or intelligence or cognition. But I don't think, you know, it's ever actually been shown anywhere. 
but I think that's, you know, it's the, the air of mystery that I think Andrea talked about, as he called the preservation of mystery. Um, so I don't think there is one. Or the, you know, the microtubules, I still don't think they've really showed anything there. Prior to that, he, Penrose in his first book, knew, thought there might be, it might be going on somewhere else, but it was just a placeholder. But they, I mean, this, you know, you, Keith and I have talked about this a lot, but I, this has been something that's been done since um, uh, the early days. Um, first being um, one of Heinz, I think it was during the modern physicists, um, he went on to to become a biologist, but he, what's got his, I can't remember his name, but he was the first to kind of posit maybe some kind of thing like this was happening in living systems, but he, he quickly abandoned it um, and then continued to do other great things in biology. But people have been circling that ever since. I mean, I personally, I think there's value to it, but after we've understand the non-quantum, I think there'll be many non-quantum explanations for knowledge and intelligence and living or intelligent systems. And then they'll be supercharged by understanding how to manipulate quantum information so that you know, it would be like the flight is happening naturally in birds and there are physical principles, but the jet engine is, is what got created for super fast flight, but they're not really connected directly. So I think we'll have, you know, AI and maybe quantum systems that can do things faster and better, but it won't be per se needed to make that happen, which is, I think, the link to trying to find some non-trivial biological uh, system that exhibits like superposition or entanglement. I, I, I would say... I would say that the Penrose model has that rotating molecule, and that kind of resembles like a hashing algorithm, in my opinion. So there, there could be some sort of hashed entanglement. So it's not necessarily that all the molecules and particles are exhibiting this kind of behavior, but you could distribute it out in a network. And therefore, when you have uh, like, a, like a protein and it bends a little bit from one state to another, uh, that might represent, for example, one state of... Uh, entanglement versus another. So, um, uh, but I'll, but I'll send you that paper, Ethan. It would be awesome to talk about. Yeah, I also want to tell Keith that uh, since he was talking about the work of Michael Levine, uh, he will be here. Um, he will be a speaker uh, on February twenty four. Is that February twenty four, Katarina? Um, uh, he will be. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, he will be speaking about his work. Um, I think it also involves consciousness because in our other club, he has been a guest uh, together with Josh Bongard, who is doing uh, evolutionary computing uh, because of the talks of the xenobots. But he has other researches on electrophysiology. And actually, I think there was another paper which was released and uh, he was working with the physicists to tie up his research with quantum mechanics. So yeah, that's another paper that he will he will talk about maybe in the future, but he's coming here very soon. And yeah, I hope you can attend that session so that you have a chance to talk to him because he's, we might be talking about electrophysiology and also consciousness. So yeah, please attend that session. Yeah, yeah. I just remembered the name. It's Max Dalbrook, who was the, he was a modern physicist, one, I think he was Heisenberg's or one of those guys, graduate students, but he went on to be a biologist. But he was the first to sort of think about trying to find some sort of, uh, you know, modern physics uh, as being an explanation of living things or, or consciousness. So he had, a, he had a book called Mind for Matter, and he went on to win a Nobel Prize in physiology. 
but you know, he, yeah, he, he was kind of the first to bring up all the quantum consciousness kind of possibilities, but he also kind of put them to bed as well. Yeah, just to say it's uh, February 23rd, uh, 4 p.m., just like today. Um, uh, Michael Levine will be here um, to share his, um, yeah, one of his newest, uh, they are still in, the paper is still in bioarchive. It's uh, yeah, about consciousness and the mind um, research and theories. It's, it's, I think it will be really interesting. If they were here before, to talk about the xenobots um, that can self-replicate. Um, so yeah, if you have any questions about this work, uh, come back. Yeah, um, Vladko and Reina, you have been here now almost two hours. So um, yeah, I wanted to check in with you, um, uh, how much time you have, or if we should close the room. Um, and uh, yeah, please let me know. Yeah, I think I uh, I have to probably decouple in in about five ten minutes. But um, I mean, please do continue. Don't you know? Don't let that um, disrupt the flow if you have it. I I certainly enjoyed the discussion. I'm happy to answer questions by by email or any other means actually about this topic. And hopefully next time we'll be able to tell you more about the the future experiments as well. Oh yeah, that would be amazing. Please come back and keep us updated. It's uh, we are all very, a lot. very interested to hear. And uh, yeah, always come back to uh, to Clubhouse to our club and um, yeah, um, join the discussions. We will have um, we will have upcoming rooms. The the next room um, is tonight at 10 p.m. EST and uh, Dr. Field will um, talk about his uh, new invention that he did with his company. Um, he uh, uh, They developed a wearable device um, that does non-invasive, very uh, precise optical brain imaging, which is very excited because usually to do this precise brain Im imaging, people have to lay down, very still sit, lay in this tube and he developed like a device that you can wear on your head and do optical brain imaging. So uh, that's that's really very exciting. Um, so yeah, come back later and uh, uh, follow the club. We have uh, more rooms coming up with uh, guest speakers, um, as uh, Cecile already mentioned. Uh, on February 22nd, next Tuesday, we'll have Dr. Jones. He will talk about uh, stochastic microbiome assembly uh, and that it depends on context so I heard a lot that people are interested in the microbiome so there will you have will have a chance to talk with a researcher that works on the microbiome and uh, yeah and then uh, Dr. Levine will come back and um, and Dr. Kaufer she works on anxiety and PTSD research and she saw differences in myelin uh, in people that have anxiety and PTSD compared to a healthy individual. So, yeah, please come back, but uh, go ahead and continue with the discussion. Uh, it's uh, very nice. Yeah, I, I just I wanted to question? mention the, the paper I mentioned from Michael Levine. It's called, the name is Metabolic Limits on Classical Information Processing by Biological Cells. 
So he uses actually some uh, quantum information to analyze uh, the decoherence uh, in the surroundings of the cell membrane. And yeah, I think it's it's pretty interesting. I just want to mention also that uh, the, his work on consciousness, um, actually he wanted to bring in here Daniel Dennett because uh, he is a collaborator in his work on the point of philosophy, but uh, uh, Daniel Dennett is not available. So yeah, he's just coming in. So I think that talk, this talk, this coming talk would be very interesting. Uh, can I ask a question? Yes, please go ahead. Uh, I see. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Uh, uh, Rena is still here. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Professor Veller mentioned the future experiments. Yeah, I, I was wondering, uh, what the could you uh, uh, share with us? Uh, I mean, some. Uh, preview, you know, what, so uh, is it very difficult if you uh, uh, have the tardigrade to uh, wake up uh, slowly, properly, uh, while still maintaining the entanglements? And because they can do that with the bacteria, probably is doable, but probably, and would you share, you know, what would be the challenges if that, you know, is relevant? Or, I mean, what type of uh, direction that you, you're thinking of? Uh, okay, so let's say um, waking up the uh, 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 um, tardigrade while still maintaining the entanglement is something we cannot do um, because again um, this this um, coupling to the um, um, quantum mechanics systems only happened at this let's say very um, Low energy environment, so in this Medicaid stage. So if we leave this 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 um, energies, um, then let's say this 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 quantum system will be masked by ambient noise, so it's it's not possible to to see it. Um, for the bacteria, the difference was again that the energies are much much higher. So you we had there this um, light energies or different by light the frequencies which um, are, let's say, large compared to, let's say, the black body radiation at 300 Kelvin, for example. Um, future experiments, which we um, are, um, let's say, envision and, and thinking of, um, we still have to see um, if we can actually conduct them, um, is actually to find um, um, it's inside uh, the tardigrade, the, um, um, the part of the tardigrade which interacted with the, with the qubit and able to actually, or try to see if you're able to actually to probe um, this part, let's say for example, in, in, in frequency space. Um, that's actually what we um, um, envision to do actually in the future to really um, then do measurements independently on the, on the tardigrade and it's the qubit system itself to um, um, then uh, uh, let's be able to also give a bound on the, let's say, um, um, one could say amount of entanglement of the tardigrade uh, with, with the qubit. 
I hope this this um, answered the, the question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, so I had a question more on the biology. I, I really appreciate being here and uh, hearing about some of your future work to, to, to really pin down um, the quantum mechanics side of uh, what is going on. But I'm particularly fasc fascinated because uh, you uh, were able to put them into a really extreme state of ton uh, for much longer than anyone has tried. I was wondering if you had, uh, I, I know it's outside really your bailiwick, but whether you had any uh, biologists come and want to uh, follow up on this because uh, uh, it, it is a very interesting field as, as far as uh, cryobiology, trying to uh, figure out everything from freezing uh, human ova, which is could be nice, to uh, uh, making some nice popsicles for space travel so yes um so let's say the biologist on our team was uh, nadia Mudberg. um she also had helped us uh with let's say or well, taught us um how to um uh handle the the, the tardigrade um and um let's say when discussing with her and so on um mm -hmm. There was still, it's if I understand it correctly, um, I'm a physicist, I'm not, not a biologist, so if I understand it correctly, um, there was still sort of um, some of the assumption that also in the cryptobiosis state, there was, huh. let's say, no measurable metabol uh, metabolism going on, but maybe there's still some small metabolism uh, going on within the um, um, Detail, yeah, the yeah. The, 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 the argument seems to be that, that, that maybe there's uh, it's it slowed down basically about 100, per, 100 to 1000 percent versus entirely frozen. Right, uh, exactly. So but yeah, exactly. I, I think what we what would we could actually show with this experiment, um, let's say this maybe on the on the side track, is actually that um, it is totally uh, came to a standstill. I mean, at yeah. this uh, again, at this uh, millikelvin environment, um, the that everything is in their ground state. So one could say, yeah, there's there's no movement, there's no um, 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 chemical reaction. Yep. There's nothing Perfect. going on. It's, it's, no, it's no, zero. no, yeah. yeah. So it's it's yeah. Yeah, there's there's no metabolism at all. Um, that's maybe that's on the biological side what we could could actually show there um, as well. Yeah, because uh, it's it, it, it's it's been tough naturally to find uh, tardigrades that are uh, uh, naturally in tune for a long time. It was previously two thousand years. I, I think they found some. Uh, considerably older ones now, but but yeah, that that was another, you, you know, f from the biology side, that was something that came out of it that that I found really interesting and and important. Anyway, yeah, thank you.
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Yeah, if there are no more questions, uh, we don't want to take uh, too much time from uh, Rainer. Maybe he'll just come back. Um, we can we can arrange for him to come back sometime, and uh, we'll discuss some more, maybe with updates. Um, so yeah, thank you so much um, for being here and for making this happen with us. Uh, we really appreciate um, you coming and answering all these questions. Uh, this was really um, uh, amazing. And uh, yeah, we want to thank you all for, for, for being here. Absolutely, thanks actually for inviting me here. I mean, it was a very interesting uh, experience. It was very nice. I enjoyed the discussion uh, very much. Uh, the questions were very, um, um, really um, 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 on topic and uh, very, very precise. So I um, also uh, like that the discussion actually more than, let's say, the earlier 10 minutes presentation. Um, so yeah, I think this this format is maybe the future of uh, uh, science. Who knows? Okay, thank you. Yeah. So. I really enjoy it too because you get to read so many different people and uh, sometimes really interesting ideas and conversations come up that we usually in conferences, we don't have the opportunity to. So I agree with you and um, yeah, I enjoy it also very much. So yeah, maybe you become also a clubhouse addict <laughs> like we are. <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly, exactly. Okay. It's um, a natural transition from podcasts, right? So po audio signals, uh, as I learned on Clubhouse, uh, actually faster than visual and allow us to do multitasking. So it is the future. I am, uh, Ragnar, I am <laughs> with you on that. Yeah, I think you're right, Frank. Let's see. Okay, with that, Thank you all very much. I'll see you back in uh, four hours <laughs> where we have, yeah, the, the amazing inventor guest speaker uh, that uh, developed this really, really groundbreaking uh, brain imaging for humans device, because if we can move around and do precise brain imaging, that will totally be a game changer. Um, yeah, so uh, please come back and thanks everyone for attending and asking all these great questions. Uh, this was great. So uh, bye, guys. I'll close the room now. Thanks, Katarina. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank thanks. you, Katarina. This has been fantastic. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.